Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Linnea Dominic, Curiosity Intern. In case you missed it, October 11th was National Coming Out Day. So we thought we'd return to a story from our archives that looks at Chicago's house music scene in the early 80s, where a lot of people, particularly young Black gay people, experienced a safe space for self-expression. Reporter Olivia Richardson has that story. A quick warning that the story you're about to hear contains an anti-gay slur. Curious City listener Anthony Avery is a fan of rave culture and house music. He even wrote his PhD dissertation on electronic dance culture. As a teenager in Buffalo, New York, who went to raves, which are dance parties in huge spaces like old warehouses, he didn't realize house music originated in Chicago. He knows that now, but he wants to know what it was like to be a part of the house scene in the early 80s in Chicago. House music is soul, disco, funk, pop, and post-punk tracks remixed into long, continuous dance tracks. The two most prominent house clubs in those early years were The Power Plant and The Warehouse. That's where lots of people say house gets its name, like Warehouse. To answer Anthony's question, I talked to a lot of househeads, or superfans, who went to The Warehouse and The Power Plant in Chicago in the early 80s. You'll hear them talk about DJ Frankie Knuckles, one of the founders of House, and they'll share memories of dancing all night long. People would bring backpacks sometimes so that they would have a fresh change of clothes because it wasn't like you get a little bit of sweat, you know, front of your shirt and the back of your shirt. I mean, drenched. Take the T-shirt off of somebody, you could wring a cup of perspiration out of it. People remember how inclusive the scene was. It originated in the gay black community. They say the clubs felt like a safe space, physically and culturally. I'm going to take you through a typical night from the memories of the people who went to those early clubs. People like Charles Matlock, who runs a dance music archive and trained as a DJ under Frankie Knuckles. When he first started going to the warehouse, he was under 18, so he got a fake ID to get in. He says first, you had to get there. I would have to wait until my mom would go to sleep. So midnight or so, she's nodding off. I would sneak out, usually the back door. I would leave the door kind of like sort of not totally locked. And as long as I got back by about 8.30 before she woke up in the morning, 8.39, I was good. And people say how you dressed was really important. We took great care and effort into ensuring that whatever we wore, however we cut our hair and all of that, that, had to be completely unique. That's Kahari, a prominent Chicago musician who spent a lot of nights at both clubs. And he says how you dressed also had consequences. The warehouse and the power plant weren't located where typical clubs were located at the time. And lots of people took public transportation and had to walk to get to them. Kahari says you might have been targeted along the way because of the way you dressed. Guys would wear blouses and kilts, a kind of dress that was associated with gay culture and homophobia. Gangbaggers would be threatening us. <laughs> they them house fags. Like, mm. that was like a thing. 
because it was assumed that you were gay if you were doing house. So he says sometimes it felt unsafe. We were risking our lives (laughs) to get to the party, literally to get to the party. And a lot of cats ran or got jumped or got beat on, you know, like it was serious. But it was worth it. It was like, we need to be where this music is, where our people are. Once you got to the club, people say you were safe. Even if gang members came in, violence was not allowed. Lori Branch, a house DJ who was in high school at the time, remembers feeling excited walking up to the club. You hear it, you know, from blocks away, this kind of bass, heavy, magnetic, you know, energy that's coming at you. Branch says the warehouse and the power plant had almost no furniture or decor. They were mostly empty spaces with black walls and just a couple of strobes and a wall of speakers. And that was the point. The bare space allowed for an open atmosphere without pretensions. She said the music inside was loud. Everybody was dancing on the floor below. And then you would descend into this this energy on the dance floor that was um, just would overtake you, and, and you didn't want to leave. For Branch, the warehouse was also a place to explore her sexuality. She was just realizing she liked girls. I had a boyfriend at the time, so I was really trying to figure it all out. But it, it was a safe place to do that. That certainly added to its, uh, its appeal as a young person. In high school in the 80s, most people were not out. But inside the warehouse, things were different. I mean, I, I really hadn't seen gay people before, other than the few that I, I kind of knew here and there. So... You know, to go into a place and, and be surrounded by folks who are kind of like a family you never had, you know, was a, was a pretty neat experience for me. You know, and I could meet girls there. I didn't, that was not something you could do in high school. Branch says that dancing was more important than socializing, gossiping, or trying to get dates. And Charles Matlock agrees. He says you could dance alone, you could dance with friends, you could dance with strangers. The first dance partner that I had at at the power plant was this woman who I never knew her name. But I never said, hey, what's your name? And, you know, you want to hang out? Because I had a girlfriend. No, I mean, we danced extremely well together, but that's the limit of of us having fun. Matlock says the room would vibrate with the speakers that were designed to immerse a packed crowd, putting everyone into a feverish trance, moving almost as a whole. The wooden floors would bounce under dancing feet. Everybody says another great thing about the warehouse was new mixes. People would follow particular DJs like Frankie Knuckles, Robert Williams, Marshall Jefferson, Steve Silk Hurley, and Chicago's Chip E. Knuckles in particular would remix pop and disco songs so that they were almost unrecognizable. Charles Matlock found himself dancing to a song that had him entranced, and then realized it was a remixed version of a Michael Jackson song he previously thought he didn't care for. Househeads tell me as the years went on, everything changed. Chicago DJs became recording artists. In the 80s and 90s, many of their records got bootlegged and shipped to Europe, where the sound spread quickly, but the DJs didn't always get profit off of the sales. Back in Chicago, commercial clubs started playing house. Celebrities like Madonna and Boy George would attend house parties. These clubs weren't like the warehouse or the power plant, and the black kids from there couldn't always get in. And there was discrimination. That's house DJ Darlene Jackson. 
you could want to go to some club on the north side or something like that, and they just wouldn't let you in. So they had a specific door policy about who could come in and who couldn't. But Darlene says that some people continue to find and create their own underground spaces or dance away at clubs where they could. Some people even open up their homes to let people dance. And you can still hear that old-school soul funk sound and some modern sounds at places like Chosen Few Picnic, a house party of 50,000 located in Jackson Park, where househeads like Charles Matlock are still sweating and bringing their grandbabies, nieces, and nephews to get hooked on house. Thanks again to Olivia Richardson for that reporting. And by the way, the Chosen Few Picnic did take place this summer but it was virtual. An estimated 100,000 people live-streamed the event. For this week's look into how the school year is going for Chicagoans, we talked with Kanako Morikawa, who has teamed up with a family whose children attend the same school as hers, Jonathan Burr Elementary in Bucktown Wicker Park. Since Burr began the school year remotely, The families wanted an option for their children to have contact with other kids during the school day. So they created a pod, temporarily merging their families for the purposes of COVID safety. And they do the remote learning in the garage. Three days a week, they spend in the Morikawa garage, and the other two in the other family's garage, while Morikawa attends grad school and works. The two families have kids the same age. Bodhi and Elliot are in second grade, Theo and Asher are starting kindergarten, and Misha and Ruth are in preschool. They call their pod the Padawan Montessori. Kanako Morikawa explains why. Padawan is like a Jedi in training is what it really means, but it's like P-A-D-A-W-A-N is how you spell it. But since we're forming a pod, um, I spelled it a little differently, a play on words. Morikawa's worked hard to make the garage feel like a school. She put up sheets to create walls, and there are whiteboards with the kids' schedules and all their passwords for the apps hanging up by the sheets. She says it was a tough transition for the second graders who miss their friends, but her daughter is enjoying starting kindergarten virtually. She thinks she's a big girl because she's online and in front of a computer and doing all the things her big brother's doing. Morikawa worries about typing skills taking the place of handwriting for her seven-year-old, so she prints out all of his assignments and has him write in the answers. She says her son gets frustrated because he doesn't know how to type very well yet, and that he missed a math question recently because of a typo. So that was like, I know you know it, buddy, but you know, it's just like, he's going to have to learn to be more careful and not just keep, be click happy and make sure he checks his answers before he moves on, you know. Given all the new skills kids are having to learn over the screen, she makes sure they get some brain breaks to play in the alley behind the garage. Now what can I do? You can, uh, you have a brain break, don't you? Yeah, so go, go play. Be a kid. Just put a helmet on, okay, bud? And at the end of the school day, she has them help clean up. They vacuum the rug and pick up after themselves. And she says so far, this home learning thing is working pretty well. The kids actually like it. My kids say they would rather be at home than go back to school. You know, even if they miss their friends, they loved homeschool. She says it will be challenging when it gets too cold in the garage. They'll have to go in the house and wear masks. But she thinks it's safer than being in school with a bunch of kids and one teacher trying to enforce social distancing and hand washing. We'd love to hear from you about how you're handling this uncertainty and what preparations you're making for winter. 
Send us an email at curiouscity at wbez.org or leave us a voicemail at 888-789-7752. That's 888-789-7752. And we might just feature you in our podcast. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. I'm Linnea Dominic. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.